When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with freedom through faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. God, hallelujah. Hello, everyone, everywhere. This is Pastor Robert Thibodeau. Welcome to Freedom Through Faith for this blessed day. Every day is a blessed day when you can gather together around the Word of God. Amen. Let's go to the Lord with a word of prayer. We'll get started. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before your throne this day, boldly to your throne of grace and of mercy that we may obtain your mercy and find your grace that helps in our time of need. Father, we thank you for the word that became flesh. We thank you for Jesus who died for our sins. We thank you for honoring his death by raising him from the dead, the firstborn from the dead, that we who believe on him, in him, through him, by him, can have the forgiveness of all our sins and iniquities and receive the gift of everlasting life. We thank you, Father God, for that. Now, as we open your word, lead and guide us by your Holy Spirit, that in all things you can be lifted up and glorified, that Jesus can be lifted up and glorified through our study, that your word goes forth and does not return to you void, that it accomplishes what you please and prospers where you send it. And to you we give honor, glory, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Glory to God. Join me in our confession of faith. Repeat these words after me. Ponder them in your heart. Let them be the foundation upon which you build each and every Bible study you go into. Every time you open the Bible, let this be the foundation upon what you build. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. Hallelujah. He ascended into heaven and sits now at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from where he's coming soon to judge the living and the dead. 
I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the church is the body of Christ. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And I believe in life everlasting. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Get your Bibles. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4, verse 18. This is going to be the first session of a couple of weeks. I don't know if it would be two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. It would be as long as the Lord tells me to go on. But I want to look at the calling of the Lord, which is also representative of our calling to follow the Lord. Where Jesus, after the temptation and all that, came to his hometown, and we covered this in detail. I'm not going to go through it. If, if you missed the study on the authority of Jesus, about the boyhood of Jesus, about how he was raised, they just didn't hand the scroll to any Tom, Dick, or Harry that walked into the church or into the synagogue. These scrolls were precious. And they were only handed to rabbis. So Jesus is recognized as a rabbi when he is handed this scroll. And he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. And then it goes through who he's supposed to preach the gospel to, to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to the sick. But we're just going to stop right there. Today's study is the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach. That's what we're going to focus on today. Now, to give you some background on, on what the Holy Spirit was guiding me in this teaching, I read somewhere that in the late 1980s or 1990s, a transition, a transformation took place in the church in Western civilization, mainly here in America, something happened at that point in time. We left preaching about Jesus and him crucified to pay the sin price of the world to one of preaching the grace of God, the love of God, and all that is true. However, as we go through this study today, you're going to recognize the transformation I'm talking about. You see, back I read somewhere that back in the late 80s, early 90s, somewhere along the lines of 80 to 90% of those professing and making a decision for Christ were also later found to be falling away from the faith. That's to say, modern evangelism with all of his methods, is creating something like 80 to 90 of what we commonly call backsliders for every 100 decisions made for Christ. Let me make it even more real for you. For example, in 1991, just this one year, 1991, I read that in 1991 alone, a major denomination, I'm not going to mention which one it is, in the U.S., 
obtained 294,000 plus decisions for Christ in one year. Glory to God. This is the major denomination. It has 11,500 churches in it, at least it did in the 1990s. And they were able to obtain 294,000 decisions for Christ recorded on their little cards. Unfortunately, now listen to me, a year later, they could only account for 14,000 of them in fellowship. Which means they could not account for 280,000 of their own decisions. People that made a decision in their church or in their meetings, they lost 280,000 of these people. And this represents the normal, modern, evangelical results. And folks, this is something that's concern, that concerns me. Because how can we lose 90% of the people that we spent all the effort and time and resources investing and giving them to make the decision for Jesus, to receive Jesus as their Savior, and we lose 90% of them after they make the decision? I've been saying for the last couple of years, and there have been others that you've probably heard preach the same thing, that the church holds the ultimate responsibility. And the church in America is the major reason that sin is so rampant in this nation right now. Because the church has failed miserably in its job. I've been berated for it. But that's okay. Probably because... When I preach about subjects like this, I'm upsetting the lucrative apple cart called tithes and offerings for worldly pastors. Amen? You know, in Psalms 19, verse 7, the Bible says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. What is it that the Bible says is perfect and actually converts the soul? We just read. Scripture makes it very clear. The law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect for converting the soul. Now, let me illustrate the function of God's law. Visualize this situation with me, just as an example where I can show you what I'm talking about. And we'll look at it through civil law. Let's say... Imagine if I came up to you and I said, hey, I got some good news for you. And you say, what's that? He goes, someone just paid that $25,000 speeding ticket on your behalf. You'd probably react with saying, what are you talking about? I don't have a $25,000 speeding ticket. That's not good news. It just doesn't make sense. Well, my good news wouldn't be good news to you because you didn't realize or even believe that you have a $25,000 speeding ticket. It'd be foolishness. And perhaps you might even get offended, because I'm insinuating you've broken a major law when you don't think you have. But if I put it this way, 
it'll make a lot more sense. If I came up and I said, hey, on your way to work yesterday, there was a speed camera that clocked you going 55 miles an hour in a 15 mile an hour school zone. You see, there's an area set aside down here for a blind children's school, and the speed limit is 15 miles per hour, and there were 10 clear warning signs leading up to this school zone. But it, the camera clocked you going 55 miles an hour right through that zone. What you did was extremely dangerous, therefore the penalty is $25,000 in fines for doing that. The, the judge was about to have you arrested until you could pay it, but someone you don't even know stepped in and paid the fine for you. So you've been blessed. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Can you see that telling you precisely what you have done wrong first actually makes the good news make sense? If I don't bring clear instruction and understanding that you have violated the law, then the good news would seem foolishness. It may be even offensive to you. But once you understand that you truly have broken the law, then the good news will become truly good news. Amen? Now, in the same way, if I approach a sinner, an unrepentant sinner, one who is enjoying his sin, and I say, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, it'd be foolishness and offensive to him. Foolishness because it doesn't make any sense. But the Bible says that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, I believe. But it's offensive to him also because I'm insinuating he's a sinner and he doesn't think he's a sinner. As far as he's concerned, there's a lot of people in this world far worse than him. But if I take the time to follow in the footsteps of Jesus it may make more sense to him. If I was to take the time and open up the law, the Ten Commandments, and show this sinner precisely what he is doing wrong, that he's offended God by ignoring his law, violating his law, then when he becomes, as James says, convinced of the law that he's a transgressor, and James 2.9, then the good news of the fine being paid by Jesus is no longer foolishness. It's no longer offensive to him. It'll be what Romans 1.16 says, the power of God unto salvation. Amen? Now, let's look very quickly at Romans chapter 3, verse 19, with these things that I just talked about in mind. Let's look at some of the functions of God's law for man. Romans chapter 3, verse 19 says, Now we know that whatsoever things the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So we see one function of God's law is to stop the mouth, or in other words, to shut people up. To stop sinners from justifying themselves, saying, there's plenty of people worse than me, I'm not that bad of a person. No, 
The law shuts the mouth of self-justification and leaves the entire world, not just the Jews, but the whole world guilty before God. Amen. And in verse 20, it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So God's law tells us what sin is. 1 John 3, chapter 4 says, Sin is transgression of the law. Romans 7, verse 7 says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. No. I had not known sin, but by the law, Paul says. I didn't know what sin was until the law told me what it was. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, it says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. You see, God's law acts as a schoolmaster that brings us to Jesus, that we might be justified through faith in his blood. The law doesn't help us. It just leaves us helpless. Amen? It doesn't justify us. It just leaves us guilty before the judgment bar of a holy God. You see, the tragedy of modern-day, Western-style, American-style evangelism is because somewhere around the turn of the century, it forsook the law and its capacity to convert souls, to drive sinners to Christ. Instead, it's evolved. You'll hear that word a lot. Oh, well, we've evolved to find another reason for sinners to respond to the gospel. You know, you hear me berate the uh, purpose-driven church and all that. The theory behind it makes sense to the natural man, but it's not biblical. We don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to preach on hell and sin. We want to preach on God's love and let the love of God draw people to the throne of grace and of mercy. You know, this sounds good, but it is not biblical. Not at all. The issue that modern evangelism chose to attract sinners was the issue of life enhancement. One term that just gets under my skin is these life coaches that are popping up all over the place. I'm not even going to go down that road right now. All right. The gospel of Jesus Christ by the Western and American churches in particular has degenerated into Jesus Christ will give you peace and joy and love and fulfillment and everlasting happiness instead of come to the throne of grace and mercy where you can obtain mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. Let me illustrate this. 
Let me show you an example of how unscriptural by nature this popular modern-day teaching of this purpose-driven grace church stuff is. Listen very carefully to the example I'm going to give. It's a little lengthy, but you'll, you'll understand it completely by the time we get done. All right? This is the essence of what I'm trying to say. Let's say there are two men seated on an airplane. The first one's given a parachute and told to put it on because it's going to improve his flight beyond ways he could even imagine. He's a little skeptical at first. He can't see how wearing a parachute on a perfectly good airplane could possibly improve his flight. But after a while of hearing the hearing the you know the stewardesses talk about this and and he watches the video and he's reading a little pamphlet and he says, "Well, I'm going to see if what they're saying is true. I'm going to go ahead and put this parachute on to see if it really does improve my flight." As soon as he puts it on, he notices it's a little heavy. The weight of it on his shoulders, you know, is kind of uncomfortable. And he finds that he's having difficulties sitting upright. But he consoles himself, you know, with the fact that he was told that by wearing this, it would improve the quality of his flight. So he decides to give the thing a little time and see what happens. As he is waiting, he looks around and he notices some of the passengers are pointing at him and laughing at him because he's wearing a parachute on a perfectly good airplane. And he begins to be embarrassed and actually humiliated a little bit. So they continue to point and laugh at him. He, he just can't stand it any longer. He takes it off and slings it under his seat, throws it under the floor, the seat in front of him. You see, disillusionment and bitterness begin to fill his heart. Because as far as he was concerned, he had been told an outright lie. The second man is also given a parachute, but he's told something different. He's told to put it on because at any moment, he could be jumping from the 25,000 foot altitude that the plane's flying at. And that he won't know when it's going to happen. He just knows it will happen. So he gratefully puts the parachute on. He doesn't care about the weight on his shoulders, nor about the fact that he can't sit upright in his seat. His mind is consumed with the thought of what's going to happen to him if he jumps out of the plane without a parachute. Because the law of gravity would quickly take over. Now let's, for just a moment, let's analyze the motive and the result of each one of these men's experience. The first man's motive for putting on the parachute was because of the promise it would improve his flight. The result of his experience was that he was humiliated and embarrassed by the passengers. He was disillusioned and somewhat angry that those who gave him the parachute, and as far as he's concerned, lied to him. So now... He makes the decision, it's going to be a long time before anyone can ever get him to put one of those things on his back again. The second man puts his parachute on for the only reason was to be ready to escape 
when it's time for him to jump out of the plane. Because of his knowledge that if he jumps without a parachute, the law of gravity will take over. But this parachute he's wearing, he knows will save him from the ultimate death experience. So that knowledge gives him the ability to withstand the mocking of the other passengers. His attitude towards those who gave them gave him the parachute is one of heartfelt gratitude. They felt enough compassion for him to give him the parachute, warning him of something that's going to come that he's going to need. A situation he will need that parachute. Now let me rephrase that in the modern gospel evangelism taking place today. It says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll give you love and joy and peace and fulfillment and everlasting happiness. In other words, Jesus will improve your flight or your life here on this earth. So the sinner responds, hey, who doesn't want that? I'll try it out. I'll experiment with it. We'll see what happens. And so he puts on the Savior to see if the claims made are true, if receiving Jesus as your Savior will definitely improve the quality of your life on this earth. And what does he get? Exactly what the Bible said. Exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said he'd be promised temptation, tribulation, and persecution in this life. The other passengers mock him. People that he knew and grew up with, his friends and those he hangs around with, they all begin to mock him. So what does he do? He takes off the parachute. He takes off his Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to show anybody that he had made a decision for Christ anymore. He's offended for the word's sake according to Mark chapter 4, verse 17. He's disillusioned and embittered, angry, and quite rightly so. He was promised peace, joy, love, fulfillment, and everlasting happiness, and none of those things is what he got. All he got was trials and humiliation. His bitterness is directed now towards them who told him all of this good news was going to happen to him. And as Jesus said, the latter end becomes worse than the first. Initially, he may have received salvation. He may have received deliverance from the sin that was besetting him. That demon was cast out. But there was never anything substantial to take its place. He was never filled with the Holy Spirit. He was just told the promises and at first he feels good about himself. And naturally, when something makes you feel good, you want to go and share it. And that's where he begins to be berated and humiliated by his friends and co-workers. To the point where he doesn't want to tell anybody anymore he made that decision. 
You have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website, www.ftfm.org. That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. Until next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.